Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Jason Bedrick details how this might just be the best year for school choice ever. Jonathan Blanks clarifies our understanding of systemic racism. And Ilya Shapiro discusses the members of Congress who want to make us humble libertarians a lot less influential in federal courts. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The first question you ask when you look at Mustafa Akiol's new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, is, well, what closed those Muslim minds to begin with? And to talk about the new book, I'm joined by Mustafa Akiol, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Asma Afsaruddin, a professor of Islamic studies at Indiana University, just up the road in Bloomington, Indiana. So, welcome. Mustafa, I want to start with you. Again, what closed those Muslim minds? And I know that you're careful to say that not all Muslim minds are closed because you are a Muslim. Thanks, for Caleb, for doing this. And I'm very grateful to have this conversation with Asma, whose work is, I think, invaluable in, in all these big discussions about the place of Islam in the modern world and from whose work I learned a lot. Now, to begin with your question, of course, I don't mean that all Muslim minds are closed and I can today have a conversation about, you know, opening up minds in America, in American political culture or opening up, opening up minds in France about a more liberal secularism. So it's a kind of term that I used for rethinking in every tradition, but I'm specifically focused on the Muslim tradition. And uh, there's a good expression Asma actually uses in her recent book, Contemporary Issues uh, in Islam. She says, some of the early Muslims cut down the Quran to their size. Now it's our, our time to rise up to the level of the Quran. And what she means is that Islam was, Islam appeared in early 7th century in Arabia. It's to, for me and Asma, we are Muslims, it gave a uplifting, enlightening, liberating message to mankind that included more rights to women, that included uh, uplifting of slaves, that uh, included important ethical messages. But ultimately, in that context of imperial war and violence, Islam also was cut down to size by some uh, later generations. For example, Asma very nicely shows this on the issue of jihad. Uh, in the Quran, jihad was mainly a self-defensive idea of defending the community against persecution, but then it was, uh, it was taken as imperial conquest. So, and that became a culture. And today you see some Muslims still refusing to accept being equal with non-Muslims, refusing to accept uh, freedom of religion for everybody, which is rooted in that medieval interpretation of Islam. So what I'm calling, calling for is by reopening up our minds, let's understand the diversity of the Islamic tradition, look into some ideas which can help us today to embrace freedom and tolerance, uh, and rise up to the original level that the religion, I believe, initially uh, gave to humanity, which is uh, a, a, a piety, a, a morality that is not coercive, that is not violent, but that embra embra embraces freedom. 
Asma, uh, is there anything within Islam that is particularly, I don't know, bothersome uh, in terms of attempting to reestablish this more open tradition within Islam? Well, I wouldn't say the the problem is with Islam itself. I think we should be wary of reifying Islam, right? But there are certain problematic interpretations that I think Mustafa actually engages very well in his book. And the problem that arises over time is that those interpretations were deemed to be normative. So in other words, those interpretations in, in themselves became authoritative, and people stopped returning to the sources, particularly the Quran, a point that uh, Mustafa makes very forcefully throughout his uh, very engaging book. Um, and because people started accepting these interpretations as authoritative and normative, those are the uh, ideas that began to govern people's lives. So there are highly problematic understandings of what women's roles should be in society. Um, one could argue that in the pre-modern world, that was not those roles were not necessarily unjust. Some of those rules were instituted for the protection of women. But in the modern world, we have to regard many of those restrictions on women's behaviors as, as unjust and not allowing them to flourish as men are allowed to do, right? So as we progress through history, some of those interpretations that were bound to their specific time and place no longer match the new circumstances in which Muslims found themselves in. And I think this is what Mustafa is really pointing to, right? When you talk about closing of the, the Muslim minds, is that the ability, therefore, to engage in reinterpretations of the same texts that the original scholars had engaged with, that ability atrophied over time. And therefore, this is still a problem that we're grappling with in the contemporary period. And that remains a huge challenge for Muslim-majority societies today. Mustafa, um, I'm a Christian. And there are parts of the Bible that uh, appear to contradict other parts of the Bible. And uh, there are some Christians who say, oh, no, the, I, I just read the words in red. I only follow the, the edicts of Jesus himself, and I largely ignore most of the rest of, of the stuff. Is there, is there anything like that in Islam? You were, we're talking about reinterpreting texts and trying to sort of uh, get, bring our full intellect to understanding uh, these texts and, tr and trying to uh, make them work. Is there something comparable in Islam? There is, Caleb, and uh, actually thanks for bringing that, let's say, comparative religions uh, perspective into play here. Um, indeed, there are passages in the Bible, not in the New Testament maybe that much, but more so in the Old Testament, that are about uh, conflict, that are about violence. I mean, when you read the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, you will see some harsh commandments about, you know, going and fighting the Amalek, you know, the tribe there that the Israelites were fighting. And it says certain things there. But there are some passages like that in the Quran, actually much smaller and more condensed compared to, compared to the Old Testament, about fight with the unbelievers, go and fight them, you know, uh, the, the famous words of the sword. In, in Surah Al-Tawbah, the ninth Tawbah. Now, if you act the, on the Old Testament passages that call for war literally today, you can do some bad things. And if you take the Quran similarly, literally, that particular verse of the sword today, you can do some bad things as some extremists are really doing. 
But what I would and Asma would say here is that, well, listen, let's look into the context and what this was about. Well, yes, the Quran commanded war against some people, but it, it commanded this because early Muslims just wanted first to the freedom to be able to live and preach their faith in Mecca. They were not given that chance. They were persecuted. The prophet was almost being killed. So they escaped and then their uh, properties were plundered. So they were persecuted. So they were actually defending themselves. So in this defensive war, yes, there are some passages about fighting the unbelievers. But those unbelievers doesn't mean that when you wake up today in, in the modern world, your uh, neighbor next door is an unbeliever and that you should also have the same attitude. So one thing that is important here to read the scripture in context. And when you don't do this, actually you fall into many other problems. Uh, I, for example, given the book, the example about the sayings of Prophet Muhammad that advise against women traveling alone. Uh, Asma would be familiar with this. It's not in the Quran, but it's in the reported sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. It says a woman should not travel alone without a mahram, which means like a male family member for one night or maybe sometimes three days. Uh, so this is the reason today, when you go to Saudi Arabia, they still do not allow women to get on a flight by themselves. And when the autocratic crown prince supposedly makes a big reform there, it becomes a big issue. But I would say, well, the prophet said so because in 7th century Arabia, travel means going in the desert on a camel uh, and being possible target of uh, bandits in the desert, like some Bedouins who were ravaging every caravan. So going there with a male guardian had a very specific reason for it. And women didn't use swords and didn't use you know military equipment at the time. So understanding the intentions behind religious injunctions, to me, is one of the key paths to reopening Muslim minds, quote-unquote. Uh, so, so we bring those intentions to today, but not a blind literalism. And when we do that, well, it means, I mean, you need security in every society, right? You should protect people from attacks, but it doesn't mean that women should not be able to get on a plane uh, and have their life uh, freely. All right. Um, Asma, when various uh, beliefs uh, or factions, I suppose, form around a specific set of beliefs within um, you know, some original text, and I'm trying to broaden this as, as much as I can to make it uh, general, um, sometimes they fight. Sometimes, uh, as Mustafa pointed out, the unbelievers might be somebody who believes something quite close to what you believe. Uh, in general. So where do we see that in the the Muslim world? And what can be done to sort of elevate the uh, conflict to something that is words? Well, I think if you're looking for um, scriptural proof texts, then the simple answer to that question is, if there's infighting among Muslims, the command is to actually seek reconciliation the conflict is supposed to be resolved through negotiation and arbitration. I think that's what you're getting at. You're talking about infighting among Muslims themselves. The, um, the military jihad is reserved only for external aggressors who are understood to be non-Muslim, that those are the ones who have hostile intention towards Muslims. Jihad is never waged, the military jihad, is never waged against fellow Muslims. So there is a passage in the Quran that says that if you have differences among them, among yourselves, 
then bring them to the mediation table, the negotiating table, and work out those conflicts among yourselves. Um, so I think that's what you're getting at, right? Um, so differences, infighting, sectarianism are not good things. And the Quran does condemn that and uh, exhorts Muslims to resolve those issues among themselves, um, bring the parties to the table. So your idea that these conflicts should be resolved through words has is there is a scriptural mandate for that. But Muslims, as you know, are not necessarily following that edict because they don't read the Quran for themselves or take it seriously enough uh, in the contemporary period, I think. Uh, Mustafa, in, in terms of getting Muslims to read the Quran, that seems like part of the issue here. It is actually. I mean, of course, the Quran has to be read carefully by understanding the context of it. But also, I and Asma are of the conviction here that uh, actually the Muslim tradition left the Quran to some extent aside and just focus on the commentaries and the commentaries, super commentaries on them and so on and so forth. Whereas the Quran had, has to be read anew in every generation, in every society. There is also a specific problem brought in by the mainstream Sunni jurisprudence, uh, which is called abrogation. Uh, now, the Quran was revealed to Prophet Muhammad. Uh, it, it began in Mecca, you know, the year six, uh, 610, as we believe. You know, and for the next 13 years, Muslims were a small community in a polytheistic environment, and they were trying to preach their faith and live their faith. And they were also speaking out against the idols and idolatry, but they were not doing anything to stop people from them. Uh, actually, in my book, I say, so what was the demand of Islam in, in, in Mecca in that first 13 years? I say what, were demand, what they were demanding Muslims were asking for is what we would call freedom of speech and religion. Uh, there are passages in the Quran like, to you, your religion, to me, mine. Or it says to Prophet, oh, Prophet, you're just a preacher. You're not a compeller over them. So this was a spirit there. Then the Meccans didn't allow this. And Muslims had to flee and they had to save their lives. And the, the conflict continued. And then there are verses about conflict towards the end of the Prophet Muhammad's prophetic mission. So, and when this, when the Prophet passed away at the year 632, all these texts were there in the Quran, in the, in the, these verses. So one way to see this was the teaching of Islam is about uh, faith and ethics and morality and Muslims need freedom to preach their faith. So that's the universal message. And then there were some conflicts there, of course, which was defensive. This was one way to see this, which I would see this today. And as I, as I understand, Asma uh, mostly sees it that way. But another way to see this was, well, uh, the, the verses about conflict, the verses about conquest, about subduing and defeating and uh, waging jihad, war, is universal. And the Medina, pass uh, the, the earlier passages of toleration are gone. This is exactly what was brought by an exegetical tradition uh, in, in Sunni Islam, which, uh, which is called abrogation. And what is most interesting is that, and Asma illustrates this beautifully in her book, and I quoted her on that, uh, the, the early Muslim jurists who said that the peaceful verses are abrogated were not, a, it's not a surprise that they were closely associated with the Umayyad empire uh, in, in early Islam, which, which like all empires wanted to expand and you know, create, create a big territory and, and needed conquest. So I 
I'm of the opinion that there are some examples of influence of political interests on Islamic jurisprudence and even theology. Uh, and and I think Asma's work on that is really interesting. That she, you would like to tell more about that, Asma. I mean, am I, am I putting your argument correct? I mean, I tried to summarize it, but you can tell it better. Yeah. So your first question to me was, uh, what are some of the biggest problems facing uh, the global Muslim community? Abrogation is another one uh, that's tied in with, of course, the whole hermeneutical process, right? Um, so um, just one maybe um, clarification to Mustafa's remarks. It's not that all scholars or all exegetes did that. I was surprised when I did my research into the the jihad verses in the Quran, that how many of the classical exegetes actually did not support the abrogation of um, you know, parts of the Quran, especially those verses that have to do with the military jihad, by uh, Quran 9.5, which is often referred to as the sword verse. They actually push back against that idea. So you can tell that the idea is gaining hold, but that the more punctilious scholars did not accept that idea of abrogation at all. They said, no, all the verses that have to deal with reconciliation, peacemaking were still valid. So the jurists I call hawkish jurists, that's my term for these people who were trying to, as you said, create an ideology of conquest. These hawkish jurists, their only recourse was to declare these verses of reconciliation, peacemaking abrogated by those verses that call for fighting against the enemies of the Muslims. But if we don't contextualize those verses, exactly as Mustafa pointed out, that can be taken out of context from the Quran and then used as a mandate for all-out war against non-Muslims, which certainly some jurists did. But I would say that they are really misreading the Quran. Um, they're not reading the Quran as a holistic text. And that is something that I emphasize in my writings, that the Quran, like any other scripture, has to be read holistically. Parts of the Quran has to have to be weighed against other parts of the Quran, and the larger historical context has to be brought in. So, Caleb, you brought out the issue of how there are certain passages in the Bible that seemingly contradict other passages. But there are biblical scholars, exegetical scholars, who have sat down with the text as a whole and tried to reconcile these passages, or at least historically contextualize them, right? So that you get a much more, I think, holistic idea of what's going on in these scriptures. I know this is true of Judaism. I know this is true of Christianity. And I want to understand a little better how this might be true of Islam, which is the, the people who are believers have undergone radically different circumstances in their lives over time, and that there are significant practical considerations to the continued existence of both them as individuals and of the faith uh, more broadly. Can can you connect with me how um, the the you know the individual circumstances of, of time and place of uh, be it poverty or some sort of uh, other difficulty that that Muslims have faced that have had an impact on how uh, the Quran has been interpreted over the years. Okay, well, um, actually, since we did bring up the so-called sword verse, um, so I looked at uh, detailed exegesis of Quran nine five, which in the modern period is often referred to as the sword verse. Um, 
and it it gives the command slay them wherever you may find them um and militants love to take particularly that first part of the verse and then use that as a mandate again to kill non-muslims but not only non-muslims also dissident muslims whom they consider not to be proper believers and i'm thinking of people you know groups like isis and al-qaeda and so forth now when i did my exegetical survey of this particular verse i noticed that the term verse of the sword in arabic ayat safe was not used in the early period so you have classical exegetes like at-tabari you have ar-razi al-qurtubi um and we don't find them using this term in reference to the verse but when we come to ibn kathir in the 14th century now this was a particularly tumultuous time in the life of the muslim community uh this was a time of um th- there were still uh, some crusades uh, crusades going on in the middle east the mongols had swept through much of the middle east and caused a lot of havoc now ibn kathir when he was writing his particular monograph on the G- on the military jihad because jihad shouldn't be reduced to just a military activity um it's a much broader term but when we talk about the military jihad ibn kathir references quran 95 as the verse par excellence to exhort muslims to bear arms and defend themselves against the invaders of the time and so he labels the verse at that time ayat as-saif in arabic which we translate then into english as the sword verse now we have to dwell on why the earlier exegetes did not feel any kind of imperative to to single out this verse as the sword verse the answer must be that they were living in much more peaceful times their circumstances were not as chaotic and they didn't feel themselves to be under siege the way ibn kathir and his contemporaries did so historical contextualization which mustafa has also emphasized it is extremely important um and we need to bring that into the conversation when we are talking again about a diachronic survey in other words a chronological survey of how these different interpretations came into being the times when these exegetes lived the circumstances in which they functioned and wrote their works that's absolutely vital to recreate so that we understand what was prompting them to arrive at some of these interpretations some of which are radically different from the earlier period so at-tabari's understanding of quran 95 in the um 9th century is not the same as ibn kathir's interpretation of the same verse in the 14th century because they lived in very different times I don't want to put you on the spot here Mustafa but I I feel compelled to which is uh what are the external forces that uh Muslims face that might prevent this reawakening or is your as a, your book title suggests reopening of uh Muslim minds In the past two centuries the Muslim world had has had really a major challenge uh and that was on the one hand the ideas that i'm espousing today like freedom of speech freedom mm-hmm. of religion human rights uh minority rights these ideas were often promoted by the western world western powers western countries ngos uh and uh, and i think that was a contribution in most cases 
But at the same time, the same Western world was the colonizing power that occupied Muslim countries, brutalized them, uh, plundered their resources. These two faces of the West became mingled into one thing in, 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 in the Muslim memory in, in some places. Uh, today, every Muslim remembers that France colonized Algeria for 130 years, quite brutally in many ex episodes, by saying that it is liberating Muslim women or it's bringing civilization, Mission Civilatrice, as they called it. Now, that's why I sometimes say Western colonial foreign policies harmed the very ideals that a lot of Westerners really believe uh, ideals like human rights. And I see this every day. I mean, I type something uh, on Twitter and saying that, you know, we Muslims need more freedom of speech or religion or something like that. And I, I'm sure five seconds later, someone will say, oh, are you, are you preaching uh, us about the values of the imperialists that bombed Afghanistan or occupied Iraq? They said they're bringing freedom to Iraq, what they did, and so on and so forth. And in return, I have to explain that, well, I am just like you, very much against Western military interventions and uh, especially colonialism, but also other Western support for dictators. So there are a lot of geopolitical sins of, of Western powers like, like that of China or others, Russia, and so on and so forth. But that is different from human rights. So that memory has been a, a major part of the problem. But now I also see that this narrative about these values being colonial or imperialist has become a narrative in itself used to deny human rights or freedom. I mean, when you go to Iran, uh, when you say uh, freedom of speech is a good thing, they will say you're singing the praises of Zionists or you know, selling their ideas. So they will use this as a pretext. So there are different pretexts at play that, that I actually also uh, sometimes point out to my book. That's why what we need is to have an honest discussion in every civilization, in every society, about what the values we believe in are. And do we defend those values regardless of whether we are in power or we are, whether we are powerless? Uh, today, I sometimes ask to fellow Muslims, when France bans a Muslim woman from wearing a headscarf in a, in a high school or uh, in a public job, what is the principle that we rely on? The principle that we rely on to criticize this illiberal attitude in France is individual freedom. We're saying, oh, you cannot interfere in people's lives. Muslim women have the right to wear whatever they want. And I'm all for that argument. I'll defend it on every issue, right? But then I say to my fellow Muslims who make this argument, well, this is a great idea, but let's also bring it back <laughs> to Saudi Arabia or Iran. So women there should have the right to decide upon their uh, what they will wear too, or what they will believe in, or how they will live, and and so on and so forth. And I think uh, Muslim minorities living in the West are gradually realizing the value in liberalism, you know, in in a classical sense of the word. Uh, and and I, it, with my book, I wanted to give an explanation to this search for liberal values, or or a lot of Muslims intuitively embrace these values, but they still don't know what to do with the blasphemy laws or coercive attitudes they see in Islamic jurisprudence. And, and I'm saying, well, we can revisit those uh, verdicts because they were not meant to be eternally valid in the first place. They were, they were the way that medieval Muslims understood Islam in their own, own political historical context. Asma? Well, I, I think I would agree with 
practically everything that um, Mustafa just said. Um, yeah, the um, the notion of apostasy, which you dwell upon, Mustafa, in your book, I think it's an important one. But we have to understand that um, the way the Arabic word ridda is translated into English is highly problematic. We do translate that word into apostasy, but apostasy in English simply means renunciation of one's faith. But ridda in the original Arabic, and especially in legal usage, implied also political rebellion, that you were rising up against the state. And of course, every state, every legitimate state would consider that to be an actionable offense, something that needs to be punished, right? Disloyalty to the state is treachery to the state. So the word, another term that was coupled with ridda, which is left out in English discussions of apostasy within the Islamic context, is hiraba. Hiraba is violent rebellion against the state. And the understanding was, and therefore now we have to put ourselves in the place of our medieval predecessors. If you renounced your faith, particularly for a man, um, then that had political connotations. That had the implication that you would be disloyal, potentially disloyal to the state, right? Your religion identified your place in society. There is a reason to be suspicious of the outsider because you cannot count on their loyalty to the state. Your religion was the most important market. This was true for medieval Europe, for all pre-modern societies, right? It defined who you were. It gave you a place in the society. It defined your political belonging as well. So a public renunciation of one's faith implied that that person could become potentially a political rebel. And if such a renunciation is accompanied by acts of violence known as hiraba, then that did become an actionable offense. Private renunciation of faith that had no political consequences was actually not considered punishable. Women apostates generally were not punished. Why? Because, of course, in the medieval context, uh, and today we would think it's a quaint concept, women were not understood to be capable of leading a political rebellion. So we have to take all these historical factors into consideration when we discuss apostasy in the modern period. Mustafa, before we wrap up here, I, I want to ask, and Asma, feel free to, to answer this as well. What is the one thing that people ought to understand uh, within the history of Islam that should give them hope that the the examples that they see of uh, uh, violence uh, halfway across the world uh, is not inevitable within Islam. Uh, first of all, Caleb, uh, let me say I agree with Asma as always. <laughs> I can say yes, apostasy uh, Rita, uh, was had a different meaning in in the medieval context. It was. Uh, not just renouncing your religion, but your political allegiance, it was potentially a threat. And no wonder the Byzantine and Sassanid empires had a very similar approach to, to these matters. So it was coming out of that context. But that's precisely why I'm speaking about a reopening of Muslim minds, because some uh, rigid cons conservatives today will reject all these nuances and will say, well, renouncing your religion is a crime, period. So they will go after you if you're a convert to Christianity, which happens in Iran, which happens in Saudi Arabia. Even in Malaysia, you know, they, will, they won't jail apostates, but they will send them to rehabilitation centers. And I was uh, arrested by the Malaysian police for arguing against that. So it is true that these concepts had different meanings, but that's precisely uh, that is uh, that has to be brought to the fore and uh, needs to be discussed. 
Now, is there why we should be hopeful? Is that are you uh, asking, Caleb? Well, I, I, not not necessarily you. I know you have hope, but uh, <laughs> for people in the West, whose uh, I think picture of Islam has been uh, colored perhaps unduly by uh, what they've seen just little bits on the news over the last uh, decade or so what what can you tell them about the the history uh, of Islam that should give them hope that that kind of thing isn't endemic sure first of all people of course what they see on the news is the worst thing that is happening out there <laughs> because if you bomb places and kill people you make the news and if you're in a nice decent uh, muslim uh, as as you know overwhelming majority of muslims are you don't make the news so there's a little bit of kind of uh, perception there but i admit that this is a very challenging time in the history of the islamic civilization probably the worst time of the ummah as i call it i mean that we're going through these days uh one two things to remind there this is not inherent to any religion if you beam somebody back to five centuries ago uh, to history uh they would say oh my god these christians are so intolerant why can't be they like the muslims uh jews could testify to that right i mean they escaped spain to the ottoman empire to find religious freedom in the ottoman empire so it is not that there are inherent characters of religions that never change uh, and i do think we are going through a very bad crisis right now a lot of violence violent acts committed in the name of islam oppression in the name of islam authoritarian regimes in the name of islam but precisely because that this is a challenging era i have hope because i know that in christianity ideas of toleration ideas of individual freedom became popular only when Christians went through a terrible crisis. Uh, John Locke appeared at a time when uh, Europeans were beginning to be exhausted because of the religious wars and the persecutions and the hunt on the heretics and, uh, and all the bad things done in the name of Christianity. So uh, that's why I believe uh, it is important to take lessons from the crises right now we're seeing in the name of Islam and to offer perspectives within Islam towards toleration and freedom and peace. Uh, and honestly, Asma is a pioneering scholar on that front. I mean, her work has inspired me over the years. I learned a lot from her, uh, from her books or from personal conversations from Istanbul to Cordoba, Spain, to you know, different cities in America in conferences. Uh, and, uh, and, and in my work, I'm trying to do the same thing. And I think the potential I see in, in the very heart of Islam for toleration and freedom makes me hopeful about the future. Asma? If you look at Islamic history, extremist factions have always become sidelined over time. I'm thinking of the early Khariji movement to which the militant groups, contemporary militant groups are often compared to. Over time, they disappeared. Why? The extreme ideas, which are very similar to some of the ideas that the militants are now floating, for example, anyone who doesn't think like them, any Muslim who doesn't think like them is to be considered a dissident and therefore can be legitimately fought against and killed. All those ideas fell by the wayside. Over time, mainstream Islam kept reasserting itself and sidelining and marginalizing and eventually making them irrelevant to the larger society. The descendants of the Kharijites live till today. They're known as the Ibadiyya. They form small communities in North Africa, in Oman. 
They're about as peaceful as can be. They're totally indistinguishable today from the larger Sunni majority. So that's what gives me hope, that over time, the mainstream ideals within Islam will keep reasserting itself. The fact that we have scholars like Mustafa and other intellectuals throughout the Islamic world who are, in fact, re-engaging the foundational texts within Islam and reinterpreting them in the light of our contemporary situation. Their work may not be as well known in the West, but they are, I think, beginning to form a critical mass. We need to become better aware of their works in the West. They need to be translated. But that's what gives me hope, the continuing intellectual and dynamic engagement with the Islamic tradition, which is inherently flexible and diverse, and therefore, I think, quite capable of meeting the challenges of modernity. But I think that will has to be there, the opportunities have to be there, and it's still a work in progress. So that definitely does give me hope. All right. Asma Afsaruddin, professor of Islamic studies at Indiana University, author of the forthcoming book uh, before the end of this year, Jihad, What Everyone Needs to Know. And Mustafa Akiol, senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance. You can follow a lot of Mustafa's work at in print and, of course, at our website, cato.org. In more than a year of a deadly pandemic, there have been precious few silver linings. But one may be that parents across the United States will soon have new educational options for their children. Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, spoke with me for the Cato Daily Podcast about how so many states made moves to empower parents to play a more decisive role in the educations of their own kids. In 2018 and 2019 and 2020, we had sort of successive massive changes in sort of the structure, the potential structure of education and teacher unions in the United States of America. We had the decision at the U.S. Supreme Court that told public sector employees that they effectively could not be compelled to pay dues to uh, unions that they didn't want anything to do with. We had these uh, a bunch of pension fights in various states for uh, teachers, and we had the Red for Ed movement in some states that were uh, teacher strikes or uh, teacher sickouts or others. And then we had a global pandemic that effectively closed schools for a very long time. Now, here we are in 2021. What is the state of school choice at the various state levels now? I mean, the state of school choice has never been better in, in some sense. Um, and I think that uh, the pandemic has obviously a lot to do with it uh, in a few different ways. First, uh, the pandemic uh, opened a lot of people's eyes to the necessity to have multiple options, right? So at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, you got a lot of schools that closed down uh, and parents, uh, you know, were sort of left in a lurch trying to figure out how they could go to work and at the same time, uh, you know, take care of their kids, uh, or they were home with their kids trying to figure out how to work from home while their kids are also working from home. Uh, there was a lot of dissatisfaction uh, among parents with the uh, distance learning uh, that was not nearly uh, as high quality as the in-person learning. Uh, and then you also had some families that just said, well, look, you know, I, I would, I'm fine with, uh, 
with distance learning, but that's actually not an option where I live, right? So it works, you know, both ways. Um, and in each community, no matter what they decided to do, remain open, close, go to some sort of hybrid option, uh, there were certainly a number of parents that were very happy with that option, or at least set relatively satisfied with that option. But there were a lot of families that that wasn't working for them. They were very dissatisfied. And especially for those whose schools were closed, when parents see that there are, are local private schools that were able to open safely and effectively and provide an education for their children. Uh, and they were wondering, well, why can't our local public schools do the same thing? And so uh, parents have been just looking for different options. Let's save the best for last here, but uh, let's talk about what some states have done this year uh, relating to school choice. And uh, if you want to get into the politics of it, that's fine. But uh, feel free to to stick strictly to what's changed. I think what's changed is that uh, because parents are looking for different options, and again, both because of the the pandemic, but also because uh, they're seeing what's going on in the classroom uh, with distance learning, and they're in many cases they're they're not happy. Uh, so, and sometimes they're not happy because uh, they don't like the quality, uh, and sometimes they don't, they're not happy because they don't like the politicization of the classroom. They don't like what's uh, actually being taught. Uh, in their child's classroom. And so they're looking for other options uh, and they're going to their state legislators and saying, uh, you know, we want you to provide us with, uh, if, if the schools are going to be closed, uh, then we should take the funds and, and go spend it at a private school or some other place that that's, that's open. And what we're seeing is just a massive wave of uh, school choice legislation uh, all across the country. So more than 30 states right now have some form of private school choice legislation. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, the traditional school voucher, uh, tax credit, scholarship programs, and also education savings accounts, which are, are sort of um, school vouchers 2.0. Uh, these, uh, the ESAs, uh, not to be confused with education savings accounts like Coverdell or 529 college saving plans. These are K-12 ESAs where a portion of the state spending per pupil follows your child into a restricted use bank account that you can use for a wide variety of things. You can use it for private school tuition, but also things like tutoring, textbook, homeschool curricula, online learning, uh, educational therapy, and unused funds can be saved and rolled over from year to year for future expenses. Uh, we've had more than a dozen states uh, pass uh, one of these bills through a state uh, through a state legislative chamber. Uh, and two states have already uh, enacted new uh, education savings accounts policies. Uh, recently, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice signed uh, what is going to be the most expansive ESA law in the country that allows every single child that is either switching out of a public school or entering first grade to have access to an ESA. Uh, and also, uh, the Kentucky legislature passed uh, an ESA law. It was gov it was vetoed by Governor Bashir, but the legislature then overrode the veto, and that was recently signed into law by uh, your friend Caleb, the Secretary of State. That's right. So this promise, as I asked you a while ago, because I you, I follow you on social media, and I asked you a while ago, as it seemed like every day you were saying one chamber in some state has passed this thing, uh, another chamber, and now they've just signed this into law. 
Is 2021 shaping up to be the best year ever for school choice in America? I think it's very possible. Um, you know, I think the the high watermark was uh, 2011. The Wall Street Journal called 2011 the year of school choice. There was just over a dozen bills that were enacted that year, uh, new or expanded educational choice programs. Uh, I think that uh, we are on track to beat that this year. Uh, I think right now there are five states that have ESA policies. Uh, that would be Arizona, Florida, uh, Mississippi, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Uh, we've already added two this year. I think there's a good chance we'll have five or more, which means that we'll uh, you know at least double the number of states that have an ESA. Uh, and I think it's possible that we could even get uh, 15 or more states that enact a, a new or expanded program. Living in Kentucky... I have seen in this go round of fights over school choice, I've seen it a lot more closely than uh, I have in previous years. And my hat's off to everyone who works on school choice issues because I did not really understand the degree to which uh, local media uh, and statewide media would fundamentally, repeatedly, and it's hard to argue that they're not doing this on purpose, misrepresent fundamentally what a lot of these uh, school choice programs would do. Uh, having been uh, you know, fighting this fight for so long, uh, how do you evaluate that? I mean, it, it's, it's very, it's, it's disconcerting. It's a little disappointing, I guess, because I was a reporter for so long. Uh, to to see this uh, the way it's rolled out, but but how do you evaluate that? Yeah, look, I mean there there are a number of uh, really great journalists out there who take their job seriously, who uh, uh, do their best to be objective. I think no human being can be truly objective, but they they really do try, uh, and they give you know both sides a fair hearing. Uh, Unfortunately, it's also the case that there are a lot of activists that are disguising themselves as journalists. And uh, on this issue, I mean, it, it's gotten worse, I think, in recent years. Uh, there are simply there are facts out there that are <laughs> that are just indisputable that we keep hearing the other side uh, or reporters report um, the opposite. Uh, so, for example, uh, you keep hearing things like, oh, there have been these massive cuts to public education. Well, actually, no, no, there haven't, right? We we can show you the data going back decades, right? The, the Every state Department of Education tracks this, the feds track it. Uh, so they keep talking about these massive cuts in education. And sometimes they'll run retractions, but sometimes they won't. I mean, the Philly Inquirer just the other day was talking again about these massive cuts that simply didn't exist. They had already run a retraction on it. They're, they don't seem like they're willing to run a retraction this time. Uh, constantly calling programs, voucher programs, even when it's a tax credit scholarship or it's an ESA, which are uh, similar, but uh, very different in key respects. For example, in Kentucky, a voucher program would be unconstitutional, but a tax credit, a tax credit funded program uh, should pass constitutional muster. What they did pass is tax credit funded, but they, they say it's diverting uh, public funds. That's not the case. It doesn't use public funds at all. Uh, so we do see these sorts of things pop up over and over and over. If you were to characterize what's what's the most important metric here for 
uh, for parents and fans of school choice to understand? Is it the number of students in America who are eligible for some sort of choice program? Is it the relative robustness of programs in individual states? What metric do you follow? That's a great question. And uh, there's no one metric that we look at. Obviously, when, when we're looking at a particular state, right, um, we want it to be as close to universal as possible. You want as many children as possible to have access to the widest uh, number of options available. Uh, we think that is um, A, what's most fair, but also what's most likely to uh, produce the greatest quality for the most children, right? But you could have a program that everybody has access to, but uh, is very poorly designed. Uh, that that may you know, you know, if, if a program was only let's say providing fifty dollars per kid, well, that's not really going to make a difference. Or if they they said you know, okay, you can you can go to any type of school that you want, but it has to be a school that um, uh, teaches this particular curriculum. Uh, you know, that's also not providing you um, with a variety of options. Uh, so that's going to work for some kids, but it's not going to work for all kids. Uh, so what we want is a, a relatively free market approach. Uh, we think the money should follow the child, uh, but that the parents are the ones that are in the best position to decide uh, what learning environment is the right fit for that child. Systemic racism is a poorly understood term, and understanding what systemic racism is and isn't can help us understand what policies will help drive greater freedom and prosperity for more people. Jonathan Blanks is a scholar at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. We talked about how policy, even absent any malicious intent, can create inequality before the law that carries substantial consequences for decades. You wrote a piece for uh, Free Op. The title is What Systemic Racism Is and Isn't. And uh, I think this piece is so valuable because uh, there's a large fraction of the American public that would hear the phrase systemic racism and not understand what it means when it, that term is employed by people who study this. Uh, just as economics or any other social science has terms that are used like allocation uh, or something like that, um, the broad public might not really understand what that means. And of course, it does have a specific meaning. So when you use the term systemic racism, what do you mean and what do scholars mean? Right. So systemic racism is a term of art to sort of uh, break down what how racism affects people in American society. So racism being an overly broad term can mean anything from a clutched purse on an elevator to a lynching. So systemic racism is this one kind where that explains how systems can have uh, adverse impact on racial categories, whether it's black people or Asians or whomever. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear systemic racism, they think, oh, it's a system full of racism racist people like police departments like we a lot of times you hear this with with police officers that are like oh well cops are systemically racist there means you know they're just out there doing terrible things to black people all the time and because they don't like black people that's not what systemic racism is it what what we're trying to say is the system 
as it operates, hurts black people in certain ways. And it can be done by people who have no racial animus whatsoever. It can be done by black police officers in cities like DC, whose political system is run primarily by black people. And yet they still have these terrible outcomes with how the police department operate, how they go about their business. And that's what we mean by systemic racism. It's not like all cops are racist. So when when people commonly use the term racism, uh, they mean malice. They mean some sort of a hardening of the heart in a way, or they mean some sort of fear. And what I understand you to be saying is that there are uh, the way institutions function. We have disparate outcomes for different groups of people. Absolutely. And it's something that happened like when, when we were all growing up, you know, I'm, you know, in my mid forties, you're growing up in the eighties and nineties. You, you think about racism is like one of the worst things you can be. You know, racist is the worst thing you can be. Racism is terrible. We look at back at American history and we look how racism has like, you know, segregation and slavery has just been horrible, awful things. And so we've all internalized being racist is bad. But because our system still has these uh, disparate outcomes and still affect people differently, when people talk, start talking about systemic racism, they're, they're just thinking, well, no, we all, all the things that we did that are so horrible, they're in the past. And my, you know, my dad is a cop and he's not a racist. How could you be saying these things? And, and so it's really important that we all get on the same page because what we've been trained to think about what racism is, this really awful malice, hatred of, of people because of what their skin color is or where they come from. And it's not what we're talking about in uh, in pub in the public policy arena. We're just talking about, hey, the way that black neighborhoods are policed are a lot different than the way white neighborhoods are policed. And the fact that we actually have black and white neighborhoods is in itself a problem, right? And these are so the, we use these terms of art like structural racism and institutional racism to say, okay, so this is how these terrible outcomes happen, even though they are being put forth a lot of times by people who think they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, that, that that's the one thing is that when you say that systemic racism is a problem, you are not leveling an accusation about any individual. Absolutely. It's it's really about what the cops do and what they're being asked to do. And a lot of times what they're being asked to do by people who, who mean well. I gave uh, testimony in Little Rock, Arkansas a few years ago. They were uh, as an advisory commission to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And they're like looking at uh, racial disparities in mass incarceration. And I was like, well, I'm not really an incarceration specialist. I talk more about policing, but I can tell you how policing adds to this. And there happened to be a recent spate of um, violence in uh, black neighborhoods in, in Little Rock. And the police department policy was, okay, so we're going to go into this, we're in this neighborhood and we're going to dedicate special police forces to pull people over and look for guns. And sure enough, they did pull over a six months period. They pulled, they recovered like 50 weapons. They didn't say if they were guns or not, but they said weapons, but they had to make 6,000 traffic stops to find those weapons, which is a very, very low hit rate. And most of the people they stopped were black. Most of the people they stopped were innocent of any crime whatsoever. And the, here we have a police department that's trying to do the right thing by lowering crime because they think doing stops and looking for guns will lower crime. And so that's what they're doing. And they, they're doing this in black neighborhoods, but it's basically treating a bunch of black people like criminals and black people resent that. And that's what we mean, but like that, that's, that's how structural racism happens. It's people who are trying to do the right, sometimes trying to do the right thing, 
And but it still has this impact because being pulled over and having your car searched is not a small thing. It, it it's like having your life turned out on the side of the road, and you're you're just going about your life doing just coming home from work. And that I don't think people understand. Like just regular police contact that has nothing to do with arrest, has nothing to do with incarceration, can have harms in and of itself. And so when we when we criticize this, and we use terms like structural racism, we're not saying, oh, that cop pulled that person over because they're black and they're racist. It's because they're using a tactic that is almost exclusively used in black neighborhoods against almost exclusively black people, and that has costs. In terms of framing policy here, it seems like it is a, a real difficult uh, problem to address. That is uh, establishing a set of policies that, and it really it seems like you would need some some pretty serious economic thinking, understanding incentives, and uh, what the likely result—not necessarily the result that we hope for, or the hope the result that we would hope to avoid—but what looks likely from a given set of policies surrounding policing. So what's, in your view, what is the first step to address systemic racism from a policy perspective and understand what the likely consequences of certain kinds of policing will be? I, I think basically, you know, it can be as simple as just treat people how you want to be treated. Like if, if we get back to the constitutional guidelines of how police are supposed to operate, basically the idea of the Fourth Amendment is, you know, you're, you're secure in your paper person's paper and effects from government search and, and and from seizure, right? That seems pretty straightforward. Now, Fourth Amendment law has gone all over the place. But basically, if we break that into plain English, it's like you should be able to go about your life without being stopped and searched by cops or having your house searched by cops, you know, without the cops having a very good reason to do so. But because the Supreme Court has twisted the Fourth uh, Amendment to basically say, well, if the cop has a kind of a seeking suspicion and he does, he just pats the outside of your clothes and, or he gets, cons or if he asks you if he can search your pockets or your car, then it's okay. Um, and, but again, they only, they primarily use those permissions against black people. They, again, it just all falls apart. But if, if we retreat back to the idea of what the fourth amendment meant, the idea to be free from government intrusion in your life without really good reason, then all of a sudden those problems go away. And then we look at different policing strategies that work that don't require that intrusion that uh, the Supreme Court has allowed just because just because it's allowed doesn't mean it should be done, right? So if you look at evidence-based policing research, uh, it's relatively new. Uh, the, the really great uh, work comes out of Arizona State and George Mason University just across the river in Fairfax. Um, and they actually show that Visible policing, visible cops in co cops in uh, in squad cars in places where uh, crime has been happening. We, you can call them hot spots. You can you know just say whatever you want to want to say there. That actually deters crime in ways that doesn't pop up elsewhere because for some reason crime tends to be very location based. Data show, and so if you put visible cops in those places, crime can go down, and you don't have to stop and search everyone while you're there. But because cops have been incentivized to, you know, by police, by, you know, politicians who say, okay, crime is up. What are you, what are you going to do about it? They're incentivized to produce numbers and say, okay, well, we got this many guns off the street and we, or we got this many, we confiscated this many drugs. And to do that, you have to do that invasive policing again. And so it's really thinking about 
figuring out how to change the incentives from uh, politicians to stop asking the cops to do these things to produce evidence of them doing something instead of actually making the public safer in ways that don't necessarily require arrest or confiscation. So use the actual requirements of suspicion that is particularized and based on an individual rather than some group? Yeah, it's amazing. There isn't a... A lot of people say, well, one of the arguments I get a lot is, well, black people commit crime at a higher rate than white people, and therefore that justifies what cops do. Um, even if that were so, um, and, I, it, 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 and I haven't looked closely at the data because, it, again, an individualized suspicion is like my baseline, but there isn't a, well, more people who look like you commit these crimes exception to the Constitution. Individualized suspicion is quite important. It's absolutely the baseline of being left alone by the government, and we should revert to that. And it's it seems pretty simple, but at the same time, it's really hard to get cops to change what they do because you know my dad is a cop. I've been I've been studying this stuff for a while. Police departments are really loath to look at ways of changing that aren't they're they're very instinctual. They're just like okay, well this is this is what we've done in the past and it's worked for us, so we're just going to continue doing that instead of like looking at evidence, bringing in. Uh, analysts to say, okay, is this actually working or is this actually doing more harm than good? Even though we got guns off the street, you know, what, how, what was that cost? The pitch that, that I've made to Republican leaning friends, uh, regarding, you know, I lived in Louisville for many years. I live just outside of Louisville today. Uh, and following the case of, uh, Breonna Taylor, the idea that, uh, people feeling secure in their homes and being able to be a part of society without undue suspicion, that's, that's really the promise of uh, the Constitution itself. And when there is an entire group of people that do not feel like they are a part of that franchise, that is a problem. And it is especially a problem for people who want the Constitution to be that baseline for law and order to exist they 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 claim to celebrate these rights and these documents but unless they're tr actually working to make good on that promise for people who don't look like them you know i have a hard time taking it seriously absolutely if you look at the history of this country the promise has always been different than the execution right and i it's something that kind of bothers me about the language um that a lot of people who I, again, mean well, and I agree with them and it should work this way. But when we, we always talk about, you know, if you get stopped by a police officer, you, you know, don't talk to them and say, am I being detained? And if they ask for a consent to search, say, I do not consent to search. Um, and as it plays out in reality, uh, it's not always the same. And if you live in a neighborhood where you're over-policed and the, and the police feel that they can, you know, violate your Fourth Amendment rights with relative impunity because of qualified immunity or just because they know you're not going to fight it because you have a record or whatever. And again, this is going to always come down hardest on people of color and in poor, particularly in poor black neighborhoods that are abused by police on the regular. The idea that like, oh, I can just tell the police officer no is it, it's kind of ridiculous it, it, to, to a lot of people, I think. Um, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, certainly uh, who a friend of Cato and late of the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, she wrote a concurrence and an opinion a few years ago in U.S. v. Gross. She talked about the D.C.'s gun recovery unit 
and she never mentioned the word race once, but if you understand how DC operates and how it, it's set up geographically, you know exactly what she was getting at. And uh, I'm paraphrasing her, but she's like, okay, so let me get this right. Uh, in Southeast DC, you have cops coming out of cars, sometimes with their gun dr guns drawn in tactical gear, asking for consent to search for a weapon of people, of a child walking down the street or an individual walking down the street. She's like, try that on Prospect Street in Georgetown, which, of course, Southeast D.C. is heavily black, uh, economically depressed. Northeast, I mean, uh, Northwest D.C. and Prospect Street, Georgetown, um, very white, posh uh, shopping district. She's like, if you're telling me that people in Prospect Street would think that this is freely given consent without coercion, you know, I would recommend the latest Sasquatch finding for you. She literally... <laughs> um, referred to Bigfoot in, in this opinion. And she's like, I have to, because uh, this is Supreme Court president, I have to go along with this, but I don't agree with it. And so she's describing separate and unequal policing. And this is, again, sort of the institutional racism. She would never use the term. Um, she she never is said used race in that, in that opinion, but that's exactly what she was getting at. And so long as people are saying, well, we have the right to say no, and we have the right to tell a police officer to you know, get bent. Like that's not the case for people who have to deal with this stuff every day. And particularly officers in units that are tasked specifically with finding guns, like the gun recovery unit here in DC. Democratic U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse doesn't care for libertarian legal scholarship, and perhaps that's putting it mildly. So when people like Cato's Ilya Shapiro file briefs in federal court, as Ilya Shapiro often does, is the Cato Institute expressing some sort of undue influence over the courts? Ilya and I discussed the senator's broad opposition to libertarian legal thinking for the Cato Daily Podcast. Based on his statements and hearings, what does Sheldon Whitehouse believe about the federal judiciary? Senator Whitehouse doesn't like conservative, originalist, libertarian judges and legal scholars. And he thinks they're too powerful. And he thinks they're too powerful for a whole host of reasons, including so-called dark money. And uh, he's proposed uh, a number of pieces of legislation uh, to require more disclosure of those funding sources, uh, travel by these judges, and other connections between such nefarious organizations as uh, the Federalist Society, Pacific Legal Foundation, the Cato Institute, and members of the federal judiciary. Okay, so uh, the Cato Institute has a large amicus program that you head. Uh, tell me about that process of uh, filing amici in in particularly in federal courts? Well, contrary to what uh, Senator Whitehouse might think, uh, I don't uh, get regular phone calls from Charles Koch or anyone else, or even Peter Gettler, uh, Cato CEO, saying you must file uh, in this case or don't file in that one. Uh, we get queries from appellate advocates, Supreme Court advocates saying, hey, this is a good case. Seems like right up Cato's alley. Would you consider filing in support of us? And we take a look at it and make a decision of whether there's an important legal issue there and whether there's a clear libertarian perspective. 
and whether it's central to Cato's mission. Those are really the only factors we consider. Uh, and then we decide whether to do it in-house as we do in kind of uh, bread and butter issues on which we've developed expertise like the Commerce Clause or the First Amendment, or to join an outside organization because we're not going to repeat a brief that someone else is already writing, uh, or to get uh, uh, a big law firm or a professor to write that brief for us pro bono. All right. So what is the impact that uh, you hope to have with uh, Cato's amicus program? We have more than one audience. Obviously, we want to have an effect on the case in which we file. We want to have uh, judges, justices, their clerks read our brief and have that affect the eventual legal analysis they apply to the case. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, we want to affect, as all of Cato's work does, the climate of public opinion. And so uh, we write our briefs in English, not legalese. In part, that's good lawyering, actually, but it also makes our briefs more accessible than most to members of the media, those who are, are interested in, in public policy uh, more broadly, um, people who come, come to Cato's website or just want to learn about a particular case and stumble across our brief and, and, and want to uh, understand a, a clear exposition of the original public meaning of the Constitution or of uh, good uh, law and economics analysis of a particular regulation, that sort of thing. I, I think Sheldon Whitehouse would like to draw a sort of clear line between the, the reasoning that various groups offer in their amicus briefs to, uh, in particular, the Supreme Court uh, and the money that funds them. But the, the level of attenuation that is required for you to draw that line, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult. Individuals broadly fund the Cato Institute. The Cato Institute then files a brief, brief in hopes of influencing uh, opinion of a court and then the court rules how it how it will. Uh, that's that's quite uh, the attenuated relationship. That's attenuated. It's even more attenuated if you're talking about uh, corporate involvement or some sort of uh, pooling organization. Um, it's a similar dynamic to, I guess, politicians, although even more so because, as you said, the court rules on on other issues and their their independence, not just a matter of uh, attempting to influence a politician's vote. Um, and I think Senator Whitehouse fundamentally misunderstands the causation arrow. Cato and whatever organization, whether it's the Sierra Club, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, you know, we all do what we do, whatever our mission is, uh, ideological advocacy, what, whatever the case might be. And then donors who like us will fund that. It's not that some donor says, oh, I want to, uh, you know, I want a brief on that issue or I want a policy paper on that issue and then gives money to, to Cato to fund that. No. Um, and, I, you know, Senator Whitehouse, I, I don't think he's a dumb guy. And so I think he understands that because the same dynamic, as I said, exists on all parts of the ideological scale. For that matter, he himself gets funding from uh, trial lawyers, from different industry groups, from political action committees. Uh, and I don't think, uh, you know, he in his heart of hearts is a staunch libertarian, but just votes the way he does because of these groups. No, uh, people are who they are. And then they, you know, people who agree with them start funding them. What is he specifically asking for? Well, many things. There are different pieces of legislation that, that he supports. He wants more disclosure uh, of amicus brief funders uh, directly. So when we file an amicus brief in the Supreme Court, there's a footnote, footnote one, which requires a statement uh, about whether anyone other than 
uh, counsel that's listed on the brief page has has written the brief, and whether anyone other than uh, Amici, the parties who are again listed, or their counsel has funded it. So he would require, I guess, every time we file a brief to attach an entire list of all of Cato's donors or, or something like that, um, which would apply to everyone. And presumably the goal is to chill that kind of speech to, you know, you know, it, he, he talks about we want to know exactly who's funding this stuff. But but why? What does that tell you unless you actually want to prevent those kind of uh, voices from from being heard. But that's only one part of it. That's the Amicus Act. There's also he wants more disclosure of uh, when judges attend Federalist Society or American Constitution Society meetings. He wants to know when they travel, who is paying for that, not whether they're getting paid, their honoraria, that's already disclosed. But if they're getting they're, they're getting to go to a conference, he wants more disclosure of not just the foundation for education and economics, but who funds fee. Uh, those types of disclosures, so more more disclosures of uh, of all of that to, to clear up this dark money uh, problem, uh, and then there's it, it goes more beyond not just judges, but the capture of the courts. He goes after the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo as you know somehow nefariously convincing judges or picking judges that otherwise would not vote as they're voting, but instead you know Brett Kavanaugh becomes a conservative because of Leonard Leo's funding or or something like that. It's a it's a whole web of conspiracy. If you saw at Amy Coney Barrett's uh, uh, hearing in October, he had these charts with arrows going every which way. It's like a scene from uh, uh, It's Always Sunny in, in Philadelphia, that that grand conspiracy. When you talk about disclosure and the kinds of disclosure that he would like to see, it reminds me of uh, a piece of legislation that was offered by Charles Schumer a few years ago. Uh, and I, I believe parts of that are a part of H.R. 1, which is the, the legislation that Democrats would like to... Uh, it's so it's so-called voting rights legislation, but th this idea that uh, mandated disclosures would not chill speech, I think Charles Schumer is on the record saying, "Well, yeah, it will chill speech," and that's sort of the point. That is the point. Yes, uh, there was a, a key moment in the hearing that he ran, uh, that that White House ran uh, about dark money and corrupting the courts. Uh, where uh, NAACP versus Alabama, a foundational Supreme Court case from 1958, kept, kept coming up, where the Supreme Court uh, protected the NAACP from having to disclose its membership lists to the state of Alabama, which you can imagine what, uh, why they wanted that information in, in 1958. Well, there's a similar dynamic now with uh, intimidation, harassment, uh, threats up, up to physical violence. Um, you know, there's a case, in fact, pending before the Supreme Court now called Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Becerra, Becerra being the still the California Attorney General uh, nominee to be uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, about California's demand for donor lists. Why? To presumably facilitate and enable the same sort of pressure uh, and harassment. And, you know, the ACLU and the NAACP and other uh, more progressive organizations have filed the uh, on the same side as Cato and PLF and Americans for Prosperity, et cetera, because these are these are key uh, protections for the for freedom of association, for for private uh, association. And at this hearing, um, Senator Maisie Hironi of, of Hawaii said that um, that NAACP versus Alabama somehow, uh, you know, ain't much in the context of donor privacy or these issues with uh, Schumer's Disclose Act or HR1. And that, I think, shows, again, whether it's being disingenuous or whether it's uh, 
you know, not really understanding what's going on in this dynamic of, you know, transparency, disclosure, that sounds great. But at the end of the day, if, if your goal and certainly with the effect is to chill political activity and speech and legal advocacy, after all, uh, then uh, that remedy is worse than whatever problem you're, in this case, misidentifying. This month marks 15 years of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I've been your humble host for, well, 14 of those years. And 2020 was quite simply the best year ever for listeners. And so to you, our loyal Cato Audio listeners, shoot me a note, and I'll send you a Cato Daily Podcast vinyl sticker, perfect for your car, travel mug, briefcase, or laptop. Put it somewhere prominent, take a photo, put it on social media, or email it to me. And maybe we can keep this show going for another 15 years. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.